Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 119, consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy laws. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgments. Many are my persecutors and mine enemies, yet I do not decline from thy testimonies. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved, because they kept not thy word. Consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Thy word is true from the So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. Grant us, O Lord, by invocation of thy name, to tread underfoot the devil in all his serpentine ways. Show us thy salvation and protect us under the shadow of thy shield, for you are our protector forever. Wherefore we say, glory be to the Father, who is good and gracious. Glory be to the Son, the word that endureth forever in heaven. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who quickens us according to that word, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. We just finished singing Psalm 47, in which God's people are called to shout victoriously unto the King of all the earth. We are told that because of God's reign, the nations will be subdued and placed under our feet as a promised inheritance. How is such an audacious assurance of victory possible when it seems the world is hell-bent on defying Christ, oppressing the righteous, all while rejoicing in their own shame? The answer, or part of the answer, is found in the enigma that is the sovereign grace and patience of God. Peter tells us the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So while it is true that without repentance, the wicked are storing up wrath for the day of judgment, be assured that as long as it is called today, the grace of God has allowed time for repentance. In other words, it's never too late until it's too late. God also, in his kindness, sends Christians out into the midst of the world as heralds to declare the glorious things that God has done, that the nations might hear and, be, and repent and be converted. Because God is patient and gracious as king, he gives unbelievers both time and opportunities to repent, even though they, in their foolishness, refuse to honor his reign. But he's also patient and gracious with us 
even though we, in our own unbelief, often choose to doubt his reign. As Psalm 47 declares, God is king of all the earth. God rules the nations. So, God is in fact reigning in the midst of the chaos around us. He is accomplishing his precise will in every circumstance. Therefore, one of the most important things we can do is trust his reign. Trust that he came to save the world and will not save anything less than the whole thing. Trust that he is in control and that all the sin, corruption, vice, and degeneracy around us is not being overlooked by him. This ought to cause us to examine our hearts to find and confess any lack of faith in the sovereignty of Christ's reign so that we might grow in faithfulness as we work to build his kingdom. We should all cry out to Christ like the father of the sick child, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so this reminds us of our need to confess our sin. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Praise be to God. The scripture for this morning's message is from Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. These are the words of God. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed or attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. You pray with me. Dear Lord, long ago, at many times and in many ways, you spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, you have spoken to us by your Son, whom you appointed the heir of all things. Right now, on our hearts, your holy law, as you have promised, and let the gospel of Christ ring true in our hearts, minds, and souls. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Well, as you can tell from the title of the sermon this morning, we want to talk about an invasion that happened. And I want to ask uh, my brilliant students here this morning, my younger folks, um, what happened on June 6th in 1944? What happened on that day? Or, or maybe there's a brilliant adult in here. D-Day, right? D-Day. So D-Day was the invasion of the Allied forces in Europe that they had arrayed themselves to, to do. And before I start really getting into the scripture, I want to take just a minute or so 
and share some statistics with you concerning D-Day, June 6, 1944. The name of the operation was called Overlord. And the Allied invasion forces came mainly from Great Britain, Canada, and the United States. And there were 156,000 troops or paratroopers come, that came ashore on D-Day. 73,000 from the U.S., 83,000 from Great, Great Britain and Canada. There were 195, over 195,000 naval personnel were used in Operation Neptune. And by the end of June 11th, which is D plus five, there were 326,000 troops, 54,000 vehicles, and 104,000 tons of supplies that come ashore. 11,590 Allied aircraft flew 14,674 sorties on D-Day. Of those, 127 planes were lost. Some 2,300 aircraft and 867 gliders delivered the airborne assault. 6,939 vessels were in the Armada. Now, what was the, what was the result of that? U.S. casualties on D-Day were 2,500 dead, 3,001, over 3,000 wounded, almost 2,000 missing and 26 captured. Other Allied casualties were 2,700 British dead, 946 Canadians. German casualties were between 4,000 and 9,000. Total killed, wounded, or missing in the Battle of Normandy for both sides was 425,000. French civilians killed in Normandy were between 15 and 20,000, uh, mainly from Allied bombing. And, and in Europe, if, when you go visit, particularly in France in that area, you'll see there's 27 cemeteries that hold over 110,000 dead. Now, those are very staggering statistics. We would expect that as they, they prepared for this invasion of this heavily, heavily fortified area in France. But I want to give you even, an even more staggering number, a number that just is beyond, can almost seem to be beyond comprehension, particularly to just the, a, a worldly mind. Four. The number four, and the four consisted of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke. Those were the, that was the numerical, uh, that was the number who God used to invade Europe. And hence the, hence the uh, title of my sermon this morning, The Invasion of Europe. But God used four men. Now, I gave you some results. I, I, I cited a, whole, a lot of people that had died and, and what, what had happened, all the supplies and everything that had come on. What were the results of those four? God saying, invade Europe, so to speak, of those four. All we need to do is just look around. All you need to do is look to your left and to your right, to your front and to your rear. That's the result. That's the result of four men going into, into a region that God had assigned for Paul and his cohorts to go. In our portion of scripture today, Paul gradually journeys to Troas after being blocked, okay, by the Spirit in an unspecified way from preaching in Asia or going to Bithynia. We're not really sure of how God did it, but Paul, Paul was restricted. He was impeded. He was told not to do it. And this unit shows Paul continuing to extend the gospel proclamation under the Spirit's direction into locales in which Gentiles are uh, very prevalent. The gospel is now on its way to Europe, although 
at that point in time, uh, it wasn't known as Europe. And for Luke here in Acts, this represents a further ethnic expansion of the gospel's outreach. No longer are we focused on uh, the Palestine and, and that area there, but now, now God is sending his, his forces, his forces of four men into Europe to invade and, to, and for the gospel to make its presence known and for it to be heard. Now, wait a minute, you go, hold it now. Uh, I remember, you know, I don't remember a whole lot. I don't, sometimes I don't even remember June 4th, but what I do remember is I do remember Matthew 28, and I remember the Great Commission of Christ. We said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And even earlier in Acts, in chapter 1, I remember in verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why would the Holy Spirit forbid Paul from moving into these different areas and preaching the gospel when all Paul wanted to do, and we'll see that, and we'll kind of reinforce that as the a, as a sermon goes on this morning, all Paul wanted to do was Take the gospel to the people. Why would God forbid it? Well, we come to understand that Paul was only forbidden in the immediate sense. That God said no. He's, he's kind of saying, I'm telling you no. I'm just telling you no right now. That's not going to be the case. That God had a more strategic route uh, for the gospel to be spread. And when we look at that region, we can consider the fact that you know, the Romans and the Greeks had really established some very uh, uh, mature, if you will, and solid uh, by highways and byways. So people, people were moving about much, much easier. So what better thing to do than to take, take it into there? Eventually, however, we know the gospel did go to Asia uh, and to every place through Paul's converts in Europe. And by Paul himself, we see that in Acts 19 and in Acts uh, 20, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, for instance. And when we look at the, that Paul was forbidden, uh, the Greek word that we see there is kolazo. It's one of the derivatives of, of kaluo, which means to cut off, to cut short, to weaken, and generally to hinder, to prevent, to check, to restrain, or to forbid by word or act. The, the idea is to cause something not to happen. And it's the spirit that determines the MO, the modus operandi, and makeup of our ministries, of our own ministries, of the ministries that we're involved with, the ministries that we're considering. And we must be sensitive to the lead and the direction of the Holy Spirit. I think of the times the Spirit moved the, the elders of Christ's covenant church to wait when we had interviewed a viable pastoral candidate. You know, we prayed hard, and we would we would t had had much discussion about certain wonderful and, and very good men. And as well, when an offer was made and rejected, we knew that God had a different plan in store for us. We determined, we talked about it specifically that we would be patient, and we and we gave and we drew strength from one another in our in our unity that we would be patient because we trusted God that God had the right guy in mind. Amen. He had the right guy in mind, even if the right guy at that time may not have known it. 
And as we waited, the Spirit opened the previously closed door for Aaron, and here we are now with our wonderful pastor and his beautiful family. So blessed. How the Spirit of God forbade Paul, Silas, and Timothy, again, is not specifically stated. When we talk about Asia, it was an important region. Of course, we're talking about common-day Turkey. And there would later be churches in such cities as Ephesus and Smyrna and Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, Sardis, Pergamon, Thyatira. But for now, Paul was forbidden to speak there. God said no. In verse 7, it says, The Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Did not permit them. And so when that happens, there's a, there's a requirement for Paul. Let's just focus on Paul here, even though he had three other men with him. Uh, that were equally as important as Paul. And that's obedience. Paul, beautifully responsive to the Holy Spirit, is willing to lay down his will, his will and plans for the direction that the Holy Spirit brings. Paul is being guided by hindrance. The Holy Spirit guides as much by closing doors as he does by opening doors. And we think about discerning God's will, and that's, that's a, common, that's a common concern with us as Christians, isn't it? What is the will of God? What is the will of God in this matter? What is the will of God in my life? It's easier, when I think about that, I have seen, I have witnessed, and even perhaps even myself, been um, uh, frozen because I wasn't real sure of the will of God so I just kind of was gridlocked in a place. But we're going to see Paul. Paul keeps moving. And as I was thinking about that particular thing, I was thinking about this, and I would have to kind of find the eyeballs of some of the older folks, people my age, that when I started driving, uh, there was no such thing as power steering. And if you were sitting there and you wanted to turn the wheel, I mean, you had to have, you had to look like Popeye to turn the, turn the wheel. But once the car started moving, the wheels turned very easily. Paul, Paul moved. He wasn't inactive. I mean, if God closed the door here, but he was in a certain place, you know that he was, he was going to be preaching, and he was going to be praying. He was going to be seeking God and doing all that. So when we think about discerning God's will, there are things that we, we need to consider, and we should, we should adopt and apply in our own life when we Consider, we, we want to consider the will of God in our life. And I defy anybody to tell me that if you are, if you are a Christian, that that's not, that has not, never been an issue in your life. What is God's will for me in this? What school should I go to? What, what job should I change to? Or should I stay here? What church should I go to? All these things. And I came across some thoughts from a, a man named George Mueller. George Mueller, um, a, a great saint of old, um, who started orphanages and was an extremely devout Christian man. And he had just a few things, and I want to I share those with you. The first thing he talks about is surrendering your own will. And I'm going to quote Mueller directly here. He says, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. We want to get into that state where our, it's God's will, not our will. In fact, 
Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that from the most important human being, the most vital person, the most precious person in our life? Well, let me quote it right out of Luke 22. It says, Father, from Jesus, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The second thing Mueller talks about is to not depend on feelings. And that can be very difficult for a human being, right? You know, I'm getting a vibe. I got a feeling this or that. Okay, but think about the things that control our feelings and feed into our feelings. Think about how easy it is to be distracted by the, the, the truth and the trajectory that God might have us on because of our feelings. Mueller says, having done this, I do not leave the result to feeling or simple impression. If so, I make myself liable to great illusions. The third thing Mueller talks about is seek the Spirit's will through God's word. He says, I seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusion. If the Holy Spirit guides us at all, he will do it according to the Scriptures and never contrary to them. That's important. It's, it's of vital importance that the confirmation for this, this move of the Spirit on us is going to it's going to be in agreement with Scripture. And what better, what, what better way to understand that and be, want, be receptive to it and to embrace it than to know Scripture, to be in the Word of God. The fourth thing would be to know providential circumstances. And Mueller says, next I take into account providential circumstances. These, are often plain, these often plainly indicate God's will in connection with his word and spirit. Now, we hear the word providence often, and we should. We're going to hear it often because when we talk theologically, when we talk about doctrine, we talk about if you go to a systematic theology, there's going to be a large portion in that systematic, if it's any good, on the doctrine of the providence of God. And the pro providence is nothing more than God's benevolent superintendent of our lives, of his creation. God superintends it. He controls it. Again, it's tied into that word sovereignty, right? The next thing Mueller cites is prayer. And pastor made, it, made a reference to it last week in his sermon that more or less that we can all pray more. We can all pray better. We can all establish that as part of our routine. And as I'm up here now, I don't have it in my notes, but I think about, I think about the king turning to Nehemiah and going, what do you want? And Nehemiah just didn't blurt out, well, I want to go back to, I want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to rebuild. He's, what he did was what? He stopped and he prayed. He prayed before he opened his mouth to the king. And again, the last thing Mueller talks about is weight. And weight doesn't equate or necessarily translate into just sitting around. We're not going to go climb up on a hill and stare at our navel with our legs crossed and do that, okay? 
in the absence of any prohibition, they were left, I'm off Mueller now, in the absence of any prohibition, they were left to gather that they were treading the prepared path for which they had been created in Christ Jesus. This is Paul and his and the men with him. Gentlemen, we have a green light. Let's go. And verse 9 says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and what? Help us. Come to Macedonia and help us. And although the man of Macedonia represented all the culture, all the intelligence, religion, and achievements in the Greek civilization, he was spiritually bankrupt. Here the gospel turns to Europe. So after a couple of no's, now we got to go. Now we got a green light. And Paul, you know him, he stays in the scat position. He's ready to go, and they go. I can only imagine the joy, <clears throat> excuse me, only the joy Paul felt adventuring into new territory as the Spirit closed doors to keep him migrating west with the gospel. Paul and the gospel were so vitally joined that an open door to him meant an open door for the gospel of Christ. And when we think, we talk about often about uh, the door open for me and, or the windows closed or the, whatever it is, um, that we need, we need to be tied specifically to that. That an open door, we want, we want to consider first and foremost, what are the opportunities that God is going to present to us to spread the gospel? to share the gospel, to, to be that blessing, to be, to be his hands and feet to express that gospel. I love Philippians 121. Paul saw his very existence as, for me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Notice that Paul never questioned God's reasoning or timing. He may have wondered what was happening. He may have wondered what, you know what, we're bypassing these, these areas here that, that maybe are hungry for the gospel, but I know I am sure hungry to give it to them. But he never expressed anything but total trust in God's wisdom. Let me share with you from 1 Corinthians 2 a few verses here. I was going to read the whole chapter, but I edited it down for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Down to verse 12, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then the final phrase in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. So here's this man in Macedonia, in the vision, anyway, the vision, the Macedonian man saying, help us. And think about it. 
Think about what the greatest thing we can do to help anybody is. What is the de greatest demonstration of love that we can give anybody? We can bring this life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. The Macedonian man had one pressing need, and that need was to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. And in verse 10 it says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go, into go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Immediately. We see that, we're seeing that in the gospel of Mark. Immediately, immediately. There's a lot of action here. Paul didn't, Paul didn't sit around and try to figure out a way. He immediately, he immediately gathered the men and they took off. And also in here, uh, when we see that, we, we see the switch from the pronouns they, them, to we, us. Sorry about that, but it's true. It's in here. They, them, to we and us. Because God said no twice, Luke shows up, and all of a sudden, guess what? We have the book of Acts in front of us today. So we might ask ourselves as well, as we kind of going along with this message this morning, how does God guide? Well, remember the word providence and the truth of providence, that God guides us by his invisible providence at all times. Let's look at Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has you where you are for a reason. God has given you success this week for a reason. And God has sent hardship into your life this week for a reason. And of course, any time when we're talking about God, when the question why comes up, I will tell you just on my own, I shrug my shoulders a lot because I don't know why. But I trust God because, because he has our best interest at heart. We often assume that guidance means God's whispered secret plans to us or in our ears, but we would be less anxious to get special revelatory guidance if we thought more about God's providential guidance and his sovereignty as he directs our affairs at all times. God guides us by speaking to his people through the scriptures, guiding them with their conscious cooperation. Think about I. Think about Acts 18 with Priscilla and, a, and Aquila and Apollos. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And if you were listening in on my opening prayer before the sermon, I want to share Hebrews 1, 1, and 2 with you. This should sound very familiar since it's only five minutes ago. Or is it 50 minutes ago? I don't know. But anyway, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This book of Hebrews shows uh, is an extended argument for the superiority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. So this is, we start out with a historical act, an act something that actually happened in Troas that resulted in this invasion of Europe, that actually happened. And now 
we see that happening because Christ is superior to everything. This, this, this message is about Christ. It's not about Paul and his cohorts, although they are, they are a premier part in it. But when all is said and done, it's about Jesus. It's about God and the move of God in his kingdom. Hebrews tells us that Christ is superior to the angels. He's superior to the Levitical priest. He's superior to the blood of bulls and goats. So what does it mean that God speaks to us by his son? It means that God shows his own person and character in the face of Christ. In 3a of Hebrews 1, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It also means that salvation has been accomplished in the Son. God's judgment on sin can be seen in his judgment on Christ. The cross speaks a loud word of God's mercy towards sinners. It also means that Jesus is the center of God's word and his work of redemption. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a verse very familiar to us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God continues to speak to us by his son through his spirit in the scriptures. When Hebrews was written, Jesus Christ was no longer speaking audibly in person. The second part of that, uh, verse 3, says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews operates with an understanding that the Son's speaking takes place through the, through the Spirit in the Scriptures. The theology of Hebrews is rooted in the Old Testament, and the words of Psalm 95, quoted in Hebrews 3, is attributed, is attributed to the Holy Spirit. So let me share one verse out of that. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, this is out of Hebrews now, which is quoting Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Scripture is not a dead letter. We've been told that. The Christian masses have been told that by prominent Christian pastors and leaders. That it's a dusty old book written by dusty old men, and it's no longer relevant. Well, I would submit to you that's a lie from hell, and we send it back to hell where it came from. Hebrews 4.12, one last uh, quote from Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Apart from the Spirit working through Scripture, God does not promise to use any other means to guide us, nor should we expect him to. And certainly, obviously, in the Bible, there are many examples of God speaking through prophets, visions, dreams, burning bushes, loud voices, still voices, writing on walls, talking donkeys, and, uh, and other things. But there are a couple of considerations that make me think these examples and acts are not meant to be normative or the normal pattern in our lives and even for the apostles themselves in many cases paul simply decided where to go and how to get there okay well less are you contradicting yourself now well just give me a minute here in acts 20 verse 16 it says for paul had decided to sail past ephesus so that he might 
not have to spend any spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he's going back, obviously. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 9, Paul says this. He writes this. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. And we notice this in the Bible. When we look carefully at the instances of special revelation in the book of Acts, visions, angels, audible voices, promptings, etc., we notice one very important and consistent fact associated with them. The extraordinary means of guidance were not sought. They were not asked for. God might give them, and he can still do that. We don't deny that. It was understood after Pentecost that the Holy Spirit was at work in the people of God. And the last I looked on my calendar, it's after Pentecost. And God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God may guide us in the ways of rare circumstances, circumstances, but we shouldn't expect it from him. I, want to, I have a quote here from one of the uh, uh, commentator, Tim Challies, on the discipline of spiritual discernment. It says, when we have ruled out what God has expressly forbidden, and when we have searched the Bible and prayed for wisdom, we are free to choose. This seems to be what is modeled for us in the New Testament. We do not find people desperately seeking God's will through dreams or visions, though occasionally God saw fit to use such miraculous means. But we see people making decisions based on what seemed good or best or necessary. So part of, part of the, a, a big component of, the, of, of what we've looked at in Scripture this morning has to do with wisdom. We talk about the will of God. We talk about suspending our own will in favor of God's will. Um, we talk about the, the truth and the power of Scripture, what Scripture does, the Word of God. But wisdom is really what we also need. And, and of course, when we read the Proverbs and read the proverbial work in the Bible, we need, wisdom is what we need to live a godly life and make decisions that are pleasing to God. Remember the references to wisdom in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians that I just read a few minutes ago. Of course, Proverbs 9, verse 10, we all know that one, or, or if we don't um, know it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. When we don't know which way to turn and are faced with tough decisions in life, God doesn't expect us to grope around in the darkness looking for some hidden will or direction. He expects us to trust him and be wise. Wisdom in Proverbs is always moral. It's the fool, the opposite of the wise person, is not a moron or an oaf. The fool is the person who does not live life God's way. When we think back, I hope I'm right, correct me somebody if I'm wrong, I believe it's in John 15, when Jesus talks about abide in me. Is that the right chapter? When we abide in Christ, when our decisions 
making processes righteous. When we fear God and are wise, we are free to act and be at peace with our decisions. I could tell you a lot of stories about that, but I'm not going to. We all have them, right? But when our, when our process is right, when, our pro, when, our, when, our, when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we position ourselves and, we, and our spiritual posture is such that when we do make the decisions, they're going to be the right decisions and we will be at peace with those decisions. So what are the takeaways today? Well, the first one I would say is obedience to God. We accomplish obedience through knowing and trusting God. We know God truly more deeply through studying his word. We've heard it said that we will never know God exhaustively, but we will know him and we can know him and we will know him truly. Number two, we should be sensitive to the will of God and the lead of the spirit. This is a natural outcropping, rather, of what I just said regarding obedience. We should pray. Pray always. Pray ceaselessly, as the Bible says. Remember the short phrase in 2 Samuel 5, verse 23. And David inquired of the Lord. Now, we're privy to the outcomes of when David inquired of the Lord and when he carried on in his own understanding. We know how that we know how each of, those, each of those lanes worked out for David. When he inquired of the Lord, David was blessed. Israel was blessed. Israel was successful. And when David just got into his own mind and all that and forsook that, we see what happens to, we see what happens to him there as well. We can, we can learn and we need to learn. Those, th- these things are in the Bible for us. God gave them to us. Gave them to us in Centralia, Washington on July 2nd. Learn from David to not take a step without God. Put the steering wheel in the hands of Jesus. Jesus is not our co-pilot. He is not. As kind of cool as that may sound. As a Puritan once said, as sure as ever a Christian carves for himself, He'll cut his own fingers. And another old divine said, he that goes before the cloud of God's providence goes on a fool's errand. And it was only natural, I think, that Psalm 32 fit in here, verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. And the last point I would make, the last takeaway here, is to have a burden for the lost and the spread of the gospel. You know, Paul expressed it very well, and that's something we, we should adopt, and it should, be, it should be our Geronimo, it should be our battle cry. That I, don't, I want to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That should, be at the, that should be at the core of who we are. For everything, no matter if it's a decision about a job, should I hire this guy, should I do this, should I go travel there, no ma- should I go on vacation, what, no matter what I do, I, I desire and I want to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the foundation. That, is, that, is, that should be what everything about us and in us and around us emanates from. Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
We see that demonstrated in Paul and those three men under duress. Paul waiting, waiting. He's like a horse in a gate, but he waits because he trusts God. And also because he, he desires and craves to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the last thing Paul has is to have a burden for the loss and spread of the gospel. As I think of Paul's laser-like focus on preaching the gospel no matter the cost, I'm reminded of a quote from Spurgeon. And let me close with this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we confess that we don't know what a day will bring, but we know that the hour to serve you is always present. Lord, may we be in such synchrony with you, may we know you as deeply as we can, that we may walk confidently in your will. Lord, strengthen our faith, and strengthen our trust in you. Lord, prevent us from stagnating, remaining frozen with uncertainty, but let us consume your word as living bread. Let us abide in you through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, and let us bear your image as Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke did all these many centuries ago. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. amen. As we gather at the Lord's table before us, we are told to examine ourselves. And if we are honest, we know that we are not good people, and we don't belong here. Sure, we can find some poor sucker who is worse than us, but as soon as we hold up the mirror of Christ, even the quickest glance reveals that we fall far short of living up to his standard. And by facing this bad news, we can discover that therein also lies the good news. Christ understands our frame. He knows our frailty, and that is exactly why he came to die and rise again. We are far worse than we know, but Christ loves us far more than we could possibly imagine. We have inherited a double portion of his blessing. Not only are we not punished for our countless sins, but we also get to wear his robes of righteousness and receive the honor of eternal life with him. In fact, God's kindness to us is so extravagant, he actually seats us at his table of victory and feeds us with his own flesh and blood. So while on our own we couldn't possibly be worthy to eat this meal, with Christ all things are possible. He has made us worthy and has guaranteed our seat at this piecemeal in a place in his presence forever and ever. So come to the table, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, you are being sent out into the midst of the world to declare the good news of Christ and continue the invasion he began 2,000 years ago. Be willing to preach the gospel to all men and at all times and believe that that word will not return void but will accomplish exactly the counsel of his own will. 
receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.